This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Welcome to Gospel Tangents, the best source for Mormon history, science, and theology, and first daily Mormon history podcast. I'm Rick Bennett. I'm excited to continue our conversation with Dr. Matthew Bowman from Claremont Graduate University. In our final conversation with Matthew, we're going to talk about the uh, academic freedom issue at BYU. Does he think it needs to be changed? We'll also talk about whether a big tent is possible. You won't want to miss this conversation. Check it out. One last topic I want to cover, and then I'll let you go. Um, There was an article in the Salt Lake Tribune earlier this year um, that talked about kind of a crackdown at BYU. I know Casey Griffiths wrote an amazing article on the Chicago experiment, it was called. Um, Basically, in summary... uh, Casey talked about it on my one of my interviews, but uh, just a brief summary, kind of a thumbnail. It seems like the LDS Church was uh, kind of embracing a divinity school for seminary teachers, and they sent a few to the University of Chicago, a liberal theological school. Didn't like the results. J. Reuben Clark came in, cracked some heads, started firing people that were way too liberal. And um, kind of pulled back towards anti-evolution, things like that. Um, it seems to me like there's kind of been this roller coaster of, okay, well, awesome liberal, now we're going to go conservative, liberal to conservative. And it seems like, and tell me if you agree with this statement, at BYU right now, and I love that you're an outsider, that you're at Claremont and can kind of look at this from a faraway position, that there's a little bit like this J. Reuben Clark time where they're, they're retrenching, we're going more conservative at BYU. Uh, can you comment on that? Yeah. So the first, and you know, this may not be a surprise at this point, the first thing I would say is I'd push back on the liberal conservative polarity there. Um, <laughs> I can't help it. I'm there, sorry. There, yeah, there, there's a lot of things going on, right? And, and I think you know, with the Chicago experiment, right, it wasn't simply kind of liberal versus conservative. It was um, outside scholarship versus no outside scholarship. Right? Okay. Um, and the, the question being, right, when we talk about religion, when we teach about religion, do we rely on these Protestant divinity school professors who have written books about the Bible, or do we rely on prophets and revelation? Now, for many, I think, Latter-day Saints today, and even over the past hundred years, the equivocation there might be if we rely on just repeating what the prophets have said in Revelation, then that must mean 
we're going to be against evolution and force evident creationism and all of that. But that's not necessarily the case, right? There were a lot of church leaders in the early 20th century who were pro-evolution. Um, and who Widsow, Talmadge, mm-hmm. they were all non-American, yeah. though, right? Yeah, who were <laughs> who were really interested in this, right? And and it's kind of an it's an interesting kind of accident of history, right? That um, in, within the LDS Church, that um, orthodox, the idea of orthodoxy has come to be came to be associated with conservative. Well, theological and just positions. the opposite happened in the community of Christ. Mm-hmm. They're all exactly. liberal, and they kicked out all the conservatives. Exactly, right? <laughs> yeah, again, you know. Simplification, but but nonetheless, right? But this shows, right, that that the idea that you got maybe two vectors here, right? The right. idea of friendliness to the outside world, the idea of loyalty to church leadership. Those two things kind of cross in interesting ways, um, and they go in one direction in the LDS Church, as you say, right? Um, so, yeah. So, but I think, right, the, the the this kind of give and take at BYU has been pretty interesting. And a lot of it has to do, I think, and I should say, right, that, um, well, that some of this um, is speculation on my part. But it appears to me that what may be happening is that there is worry among the leadership in the church educational system about these processes we've been talking about, right, about disaffiliation among younger people. Mm-hmm. Um, and oh, and, a, and a worry about like what what can we do to address this? How can we solve this problem? Um, and I, it appears to me that given some of the policy changes that have been happening at BYU recently, um, among these right we know the increased kind of strictness about who is hired, um, about questions asked in interviews, um, even to some degree about um, where the scholarship of people who teach religion at BYU should be going, um, that there is worry among the educational leadership of the church that this process of disaffiliation among young people is largely an internal problem, which is to say it's something that is caused by and happening because of processes within the church. Um, And then the way to correct it then is to teach the doctrine of the church more clearly and more explicitly. and I don't know if that's right. I think the this, as we've said, right, the problem of disaffiliation among young people is not simply an LDS church problem. It's happening across all religious bodies in the United States. And I think it's the, it's the result of a wide range of much broader cultural factors that are affecting the LDS church, but don't have a cause or a solution within that church. Um, so I don't know if um, some of the um, tightening policies at BYU are going to be successful in averting this problem um, because they, they aren't happening only because of processes within the church. Hmm. Any advice? <laughs> Here we go again, right? <laughs> Third round on this question. <laughs> Honestly, I think the best thing um, for people making policy choices at BYU and policy choices that they, that they hope will aid young people to be more committed to the church um, would be first, I think, to properly understand the problem, which is to say, right, this is a broad cultural trend. It's not the cause of anything singly that's happening within the church. It's happening across American culture writ large. And secondly, I think, um, and this may be something they're trying, right, is to give young people a sense um, that the church is a really dynamic place 
um, a place where the sort of spiritual quest that young people are on can be answered and can find fulfillment. Um, and that may be, I think, you know, something that um, some people in church leadership have spoken about is a kind of a deep sense of what it means what it, to create an LDS style of education, right? What does it mean to be educated as an LDS person? What can, what can the, the theology and the doctrine of the LDS church say about Shakespeare? Um, and these are, I think, or Shakespeare or history or economics. There's some really exciting intellectual possibilities there that I don't know that BYU is teaching. Um, I think in part because um, BYU has largely thought about a religious education as being education in many topics um, infused by LDS cultural values, which is to say dress codes, honor codes, things like that, um, right? And I think if there were room— High demand? Yeah. yeah there, well, if there were room, right? And you mentioned Jesuits earlier, right? You know, Jesuit philosophy education is really deep and really expansive yeah. and really thoughtful. And there, there's sort of, there were Jesu- you know, I'm mean, speaking as someone who was educated at a Jesuit university. Georgetown. Um, yes. There were, there were Jesuit ideas about, about education, about economics, about history, about philosophy, about all of these things. And I would love to see, like, what, 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 would a, what would an LDS economic theory look like? I don't think we really know. Well, I think I love so, Pope Francis because he is a Jos- Jesuit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? And he's interested in kind of these questions, yeah. right? And uh, yeah, and so I think think broadly about what it means to offer an LDS education at BYU, not narrowly. Um, see these problems as being wide-ranging, not singular. So is it a way where we can embrace the miracles as well as the education? Is that something that we could broaden the tent maybe? Maybe, although as I say, right, there, there's complications with miracles too because um, frankly a lot of the sorts of people um, that many white members of the church in the United States are hanging out with now, that is to say the educated middle and upper class, they think miracles are weird. Um, and uh, so, But you still have the Denver snuffer types that just crave the miracles yes, and they yes. want to have a personal relationship with yeah, Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. And Absolutely. so, I mean, and, it's and, hard to keep these two groups together. Well, and you will note, right, um, the Denver Stuffer people also um, tend to bike withdraw from broader American society in other ways, too. Um, right? They're creating kind of a smaller, insula, more insular community. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a really... Here's the thing. I think um, Armin Moss, great LDS sociologist, spoke about religion in America as being an oscillation, right? He said, it's a constant tension. How assimilated is too assimilated? How separate is too separate? And he said, religion and the church are always kind of trying to find that balance, but it's a little bit like being on a teeter-totter. You know, you're never perfectly there. You're always moving backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, being pushed and pulled by various cultural forces. And so maybe this is why I'm not giving you like, you know, they should do things one, two, and three and everything will be fine, right? Because they're just, you know, there's no way to know that. And if you do things one, two, and three, then you might find in 10 years um, that your daughter is going down the other way and you got to pull back and do things A, B, and C at that point, right? It's a constant ongoing tension. It's an ongoing problem that will never actually be solved. Well, and one other thing that you had said last week that I just want to point out, um, Bill Russell on my podcast was first famous for saying that Fred, Frederick Madison Smith, the prophet for the community of Christ, <laughs> was the, quote, worst prophet ever. Uh, Mark Shearer didn't want to endorse that. 
So that was a value judgment. But one of the things that you said was Fred did more to, I'm trying to remember the words you used, to Protestantize the community of Christ, or the RLES church at the time, I guess it was. Is that, am I saying that Not right? Not necessarily Protestantize, but modernize. Okay. Right? He really threw himself into the progressive era, which you know, was when he was sort of raised and educated. And he was a real believer in a lot of progressive ideas at the time, which had a lot to do with sort of scientific organization of society, scientific organization of organizations, um, and try to bring then religion into consonance with the other kind of great modernizing, modernizing institutions in America, government, business, academia, education. Right, so he really he built a lot of bridges between the, the what was then the RLDS Church and a lot of these other institutions, and he put I think the church, the what became the Community of Christ, on track to be what it is today in many ways, which was to say kind of embrace, well, embrace scholarship, embrace academia, embrace the intellectual work going on in divinity schools, and find ways to incorporate that into the church. Um, you know, he was very much an advocate for that. There were some of those in the LDS Church as well, most prominently Amy Brown Lyman, who was really pushing for the LDS Church to follow a similar track. Now, she was sort of stopped in her tracks um, by some other leaders of the LDS Church who were not comfortable with that, who did not want to modernize the LDS Church well, her husband as fully in that way. was an apostle. He was very pro-modernization yes, as well. Yes, he was, right? And, and you know, they, they, both, you know, they both studied at universities outside of Utah, as many of the Chicago experiment people did, um, right, and were kind of in favor of those things. And then they ran into other people like, like, well, J. Reuben Clark, right, famously, who was very much kind of an exclusivist. You know, so if we think of the spectrum again, right, Lyman, Frederick Madison Smith, right, they're over on the kind of assimilation side of the spectrum. Clark is very much on the, like, exclusivist side. We are separate. We are different. We don't want to be like them. And that's a somewhat different question, right, than conservative versus liberal, um, right? You can, uh, you can, or miracles, no miracles, right? You can see how these various vectors might overlap and intersect with each other, but they're not always quite the same thing. And whichever direction we went, we're still going to be stuck in the down or downhill side of people maybe, in the seats. I maybe. Guess. But I think it's it's key to realize there that as well, though, the, the denomination as a kind of manifestation of religion, this idea of like, you know, having a society with a bunch of churches that compete in it, that's a fairly recent invention. It's 200 years old. Um, it's not what religion looked like in 1500. It's not what religion looked like in, in 1000 AD. You know, religion's always changing. And I think kind of thinking of the denomination as the way that it has to be all the time um, is you know, that could end up being an anchor. Yeah. But so Fred was very much uh, under central authority. Was that was that a mistake? Or do you think he needed to do that to push the the RLDS church that way? Uh, I mean, you know, that's a, that's a kind of all or nothing kind of question, right? Was it a mistake or was it necessary? Um, <laughs> maybe neither. <laughs> it, it, was, it was the choice he made at the time. And, and he, I, it's very, I think, evident given... Um, given the sort of world that he lived in, why he was doing it, right? He's following trends that were very popular at the time. He's following the kind of major intellectual fashions of, of his time. He thought that was a good thing. 
uh, because he thought it would modernize his church. It would bring his church into the 20th century. It would make it what it is, what, you know, and it did make it what it is now, right? Mm-hmm. And is is what the community of Christ is now a good thing? Um, I think that's you know that's a sort of odd value judgment to make. Um, it's smaller than the LDS Church, but I mean, but is size everything? Right. You know, do you you know is size the same thing as success? Some people think so, but notice, right, that way of thinking, saying more members equals better, that's deeply, deeply consumerist, capitalist kind of way of thinking, right? God's on our side. So, <laughs> he made us the biggest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, any last words? Oh, thank you for this. It's been fun. Oh, it's been a blast. So we'll have to get you on. What other projects are you working on after this UFO book? <laughs> uh, you'll like this. Um, I am starting a project that uses the career of Stephen R. Covey as oh. a way to think about um, the changes in the LDS church from the late 19th to the late 20th century. Wow. Yeah. That's very modern. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's what I'm interested in, right? <laughs> what happens to religion and modernity? You can still talk to him. He's still alive, right? <laughs> oh, no, he died in 2012. Oh, he did die. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He was a big deal on my mission. Oh, he was. That. Yeah, he was a big deal. <laughs> he was a big deal generally in the late 20th century. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, Dr. Matthew Bowman, I really appreciate you for being here on Gospel Tangents. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Hmm? I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Matt Bowman. Matt, thank you so much for coming out here all the way to Salt Lake City. It was great getting together with you. We need to make sure we do this again because um, you're a lot of fun to talk to. So thanks again. In our next conversation, I'm excited to introduce Bob Roylance. We're going to talk about uh, Book of Mormon in Mesoamerica, but it's going to be a little bit different than, uh, than you're used to because it's not the traditional theory. Okay, I'm Bob Roylance. We're promoting a Book of Mormon theory called the Passion River Model. Okay. And this uh, particular model is a pretty accurate description of the geography of Book of Mormon lands primarily in Guatemala, Belize, and Yucatan. If you'd like to hear the entire interview uncut, subscribe on either Patreon or at gospeltangents.com. For just $5 a month, you can hear the entire audio uninterrupted. On our $10 tier, if you'd like to see the whole video, you can see that uh, either on youtube.com slash gospeltangents, or I've got a special Facebook group devoted for Uh, full videos. So subscribe at gospeltangents.com and uh, sign up for just $10 a month. For $20 a month, if you'd like to get some bonus content, uh, maybe some of the stuff that ended up on the cutting room floor, you can sign up for that. And then if you'd like to talk to me for $100 a month, we'll, we'll do a monthly phone call on something like Zoom. And you can ask me anything you want. So thanks again. Also, don't forget about the merch, mugs, T-shirts, hats, things like that. I'm trying to get the ties up there. Hopefully I can get up up there. And uh, thanks again for watching Gospel Tangents. And click here for some more videos. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.